I am the real is the ecstatic statement often associated with the early Sufi poet Mansur al-Halaj. In popular narratives about Halaj, this declaration of absolute unity with God is what led to his execution in Abbasid Baghdad. Other accounts attribute it to Halaj's directive to build a symbolic Kaaba in one's home if they are not able to perform the Hajj pilgrimage in Mecca. While Halaj's biographical details are often wrapped in myth, what is clear is the polarizing position he played within the Islamic tradition. Halaj wrote an incredible amount, but it was his poetry that drew particular reservations, even among his peers. Karl Ernst makes this poetry available to the contemporary reader in his new volume of translations, Halaj, Poems of a Sufi Martyr. Ernst contextualizes Halaj's poetry within various intellectual and social contexts and renders them in clear, beautiful language. While the poetry can be read on its own for its aesthetic value, the volume overall helps us understand Halaj's complex system of thought through his own words. In our conversation, we discuss the intellectual and social context of Halaj's Baghdad, his textual legacy, his feelings about the emerging Sufi practices and norms, how the poem's original audiences encountered them, Halaj's metaphysics, sermons, riddles, and love poems, how to translate Arabic poetry, Louis Massignon, and the relationship between Rumi and Halaj. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Carl Ernst about Halaj, Poems of a Sufi Martyr. Welcome, Carl. Thanks for, for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Fine. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's exciting to, to talk to you. This is actually the second time we've talked for the podcast. We talked about uh, your Quran book uh, a few years ago, and, but today I'm excited to talk about this book also of translations on uh, Halaj. Um, and uh, since you, you've given us an introduction um, previously, I'll, I'll send people over there to, to listen to the full kind of biography. Um, but I imagine, knowing some of your work, that uh, this Halaj project probably is something that's been cooking for, for a long time in some form or another. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, um, you know, a little bit about your background, uh, but perhaps what, where are kind of the seeds for this Halaj project uh, forming? And then where did it really take off to, to get it into this book form? Right. Well, uh, <clears throat> many years ago when I was a graduate student at Harvard University, uh, I had the uh, opportunity to work with uh, Anna-Marie Schimmel, who was my advisor. And uh, she was uh, a remarkable scholar in many ways. One of her key interests was in the figure of uh, Halaj, who was executed in Baghdad in 922, uh, but was uh, remembered for uh, his many remarkable declarations and uh, including his poetry. And uh, in seminars with uh, Schimmel, I uh, was introduced to his poetry and it made a deep impact on me. Uh, My dissertation uh, actually uh, quoted him frequently because it was an investigation of the trials of the Sufis and what it took to be considered a heretic and get into big trouble in medieval Islamic society. So uh, I never forgot that. And uh, 
some years ago when I was, now that I'm at the University of North Carolina for the past uh, 28 years, um, I had a graduate seminar devoted to the writings of Halaj. And it was really uh, exciting. The students, I had five graduate students in there, and uh, they all declared themselves Halajians about uh, six weeks <laughs> into the course. So we had a lot of fun with that. And so um, I decided I was going to take on the poetry and come up with my, uh, my own selection and translations. And uh, it took me about six or seven years to, to do so. But um, eventually I came up with the, uh, what I think was the right amount. And um, it was uh, a truly delightful project to do, challenging, because you can never be quite satisfied with your translations of poetry, but uh, tremendously enjoyable. Now, um, some some listeners might not be familiar with Halaj as a as a figure and uh, as somebody who kind of fits into the broader tradition. So, can you um, get us up to speed on um, Halaj and then kind of help situate him in a kind of intellectual and social uh, context of ninth tenth century Baghdad? Yes. Well, uh, he's a figure who's been controversial for many years and and at the same time well known. And this is despite the fact that uh, <clears throat> his many uh, writings that we know the titles of almost all entirely were destroyed. Uh, his books were burned after his trial for heresy. Uh, and so only a few fragmentary uh, things survive. Some uh, interesting essays where he has uh, interviews with uh, Satan and with uh, Pharaoh uh, some scattered commentaries on the Quran and uh, these uh, small poetic fragments that we have. Although, in fact, uh, the body of poems attributed to him is the largest of any of the early Sufis writing in Arabic. Um, he lived at a time when uh, the Sufi movement was becoming visible as uh, a group of uh, independent thinkers, principally in Baghdad and in uh, eastern Persia in Khorasan. And uh, many of them were drawn from the artisan classes. They were not from the political elites. And they formed associations that were uh, intimate, personal, and uh, interestingly mediated by poetry and, and literature. Um, Halaj stood out. He had perhaps uh, uncomfortable relations with the major Sufis of, of Baghdad, uh, such as uh, Junaid, uh, Sariya Sakati, uh, Abu Hussein al-Nuri. Um, but he was, his, the main cause of friction was that he was willing to speak out in public and tell the secret of his inner experience. And this is something that was not accepted by the Sufi uh, community in general. He was largely rejected by them when he went on trial and eventually was executed. Only about uh, <clears throat> three of them were, are known to have stood for, for him in public. Um, some of this has been um, turned into legend. Uh, for instance, uh, we have... Uh, 
a magnificent biography of Halaj in the uh, collection of Sufi biographies by the Persian poet Fariduddin Attar, uh, The Memorial of the Saints. It's uh, The biography of Halaj is the final one in that collection, and it's kind of the culmination. And as a work of creative art, it's fantastic. It depicts Junaid, Halaj's former teacher, being asked to preside over the trial of Halaj, and he dramatically uh, excuses himself to change from his Sufi garb into the clothing of a jurist, with which uh, he then pronounces the death sentence on Halaj. The only problem with that legend is that uh, Junaid had been dead a dozen years uh, at the time that the trial of Halaj took place. So we must thank uh, Attar for his uh, creative powers, but um, it's more of a symbolic indication of the uh, conflict that separated Halaj from the Sufi establishment. Uh, But he is uh, most famously uh, credited with having said, I am the truth, uh, in Arabic, anal haq, a statement which has been interpreted to mean that he was claiming to be God or to be united with God and is uh, thought to be the cause of his execution. Again, uh, the way this is told by Attar has kind of eclipsed the historical record. Um, Although there is a poetic truth in uh, describing Halaj as uh, having violated the prohibition on speaking about his inner experience, Uh, He was actually trapped in a legal uh, technicality because of a writing in which he is uh, said to have recommended that uh, people who wanted to go on the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca but could not afford to do so were uh, entitled to create a model of the Kaaba in their uh, home and uh, perform the ritual there. This sounds like something that perhaps may not be worthy of execution, but uh, nevertheless, it was seized upon as a pretext, and uh, he was uh, executed uh, in the year 922. So that's a a brief account of him. Now, um, you mentioned that uh, most of his um, textual output is is gone. Um, So uh, can you talk a little bit about the manuscripts or texts that you were working with? you know, where do we find this poetry? Um, yeah, how did, how did you kind of get it all together? Well, uh, here I'm going to have to mention the name of a modern scholar, uh, the French Orientalist Louis Massignon, who died in 1962. Uh, he was a major figure in Islamic studies in Europe. And <clears throat> by some uh, fortune, he had become obsessed with the, uh, with the story of Halaj. Um, it's an interesting story. He was, in 1907, attached to a French archaeological mission in Iraq, and he got lost in the desert outside of Baghdad, and somehow or other in the uh, thirst and uh, suffering of that experience, he encountered a spiritual presence, which he interpreted as being some kind of combination of Jesus Christ and Halaj. And he was uh, rescued by a family from Baghdad who had preserved a devotion to Halaj in their own practice. 
And so uh, he devoted his, the rest of his life to recovering the writings of Elijah from many different sources. And uh, so it's to him that we owe the first actual construction of the collected poems of Halaj in uh, 1931. Now, um, he drew upon uh, half a dozen manuscripts, which had different titles, but all had the common characteristic of including poems and prayers of Halaj together. And we know that this kind of document was circulating um, a thousand years ago. And there are a couple of interesting examples of uh, the interest in these uh, texts. Kosheri, who is one of the most uh, important synthesizers of the Sufi movement in the uh, late 10th, early 11th century, tells a story about how he was sent by his Sufi master to steal a book from the library of the great Solomi, who was a very old man at the time. And it was a collection of the poems and prayers of Halaj. He, and so he, his own teacher asked him to steal this from the senior Sufi of Nishapur. Um, he got caught, uh, of course, and spilled the beans. And uh, Solomi told him that uh, he, he could not have the book. He gave him another title by Halaj. And he said, go back and tell your master that I, I quote the poems of Halaj in my writings and I love them, uh, something along those lines. So uh, what we can glean from this account is that it was circulating in Sufi uh, groups, but the poems of, and prayers of Halaj were regarded with something of a, uh, suspicion or uh, they were hot uh, commodities that people kept uh, undercover. And so um, in any case, uh, we have this modern scholar to thank for his obsession with Halaj, to, who uh, went through the manuscript libraries of Europe and many uh, Middle Eastern countries to uh, pull together these uh, poems from many different uh, sources. And he... Uh, came up with what he figured were 92 authentic poems um, and then another 60 or 70 that were attributed to him, but maybe by later or earlier authors. Now, this whole question of establishing what were the authentic poems of Halaj is a tricky business because we don't have a, uh, a good way of testing this and uh, so uh, it ends up being a matter of personal taste that, uh, to be honest, uh, dictates the way in which scholars may um, decide on this. So Massignon completed his work in 1931 and then subsequently uh, found a few extra items to add to the dossier. And uh, there have been later scholars who have tried to do, improve on the work of Massignon. And one in particular has done an exceptionally good job. He was an Iraqi scholar named uh, Kamal Mustafa Ashebi. And Ashebi, uh, who died about uh, five years ago, was uh, trained by A.J. Arbery at Cambridge. And um, he extended the work of Massignon and he 
came up with a, a larger collection of poems. Again, he divided them into the accepted and the uh, attributed. And uh, he has several different editions, including the most recent one with a commentary. It's over 500 pages. It's an indispensable tool to understand this, this document. I did not decide to go into the manuscripts for further uh, establishment of details of the readings of the manuscripts. I think that's been done pretty well. Uh, so instead, I looked at the scholarly reception of all these poems and including the translations into European languages and uh, into uh, Persian and Urdu to some extent. And uh, so I came up with my own list of 117 poems, and I decided not to include a section on uh, ones that I considered to be dubious. So that is how I came up with the collection that I have translated. Now, uh, this, this might be a good point to ask about uh, kind of your, your process as a translator, because um, you, you do mention, uh, I think, in the introduction that um, while going through your own translations from the Arabic to the English, uh, you also looked at, at many of these that you just mentioned in uh, translations into to Persian and Urdu, and uh, I think you said French and uh, German. And, um, so uh, can, can you talk a little bit, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd <laughs> and uh, a language guy, so um, can you talk a little bit about uh, how you go about your work as a translator? Well, the, um, the principles that I came up with um, can be summarized kind of briefly that there are three things that I think are essential to uh, comprehending and uh, translating poetry in particular. The first is antithesis, the second is parallel, and the third is the clarity of metaphor. The writers that uh, were prolific in Arabic and Persian and other languages were very well trained in the rhetorical skills of how to present their material. And it is overwhelmingly found that they present things in these pairs of opposites, for instance, or pairs of uh, synonyms, of things that are uh, have some quality in common. Um, it is remarkably common to see how this type of organization is employed. And that sets up the argument within a poem or in, indeed within a prose passage uh, very effectively. And, <clears throat> and then the, the question of metaphor is extremely important because uh, I think the tendency, um, there's a temptation among translators to, to go for the abstract meaning of words. And I uh, feel it is important to resist that temptation, uh, to instead see um, the visual and physical force of the metaphors that are embedded in the, uh, in the Arabic language. And uh, I tested that with looking at these other translations into different languages. And it's uh, remarkable to see how... Uh, Scholars vary in their approach to the to this matter. Some of them um, very quickly uh, move to the abstract, but I feel that that loses something that's really important in the uh, 
in the original text. And uh, the question of how one translates is further complicated by the matter of style. And Arabic is a language which has uh, very frequent rhyme possibilities. There are rhyming poems that are longer than 100 lines, which would be really difficult to do in English without um, sounding very strange. So um, I did not employ uh, rhyme with one exception. Uh, I used a near rhyme in a short poem uh, about the, well, one of his Halaja's poems in which he has a presentiment of his execution. Uh, however, um, I did feel that there was a point in keeping a kind of uh, structure of the lines of poetry that echoes to a slight extent the rhythm of the meter and which therefore contains a kind of a poetic uh, structure that readers can, can identify. Um, I probably, in retrospect, could have done a little even more in adhering to the more simplicity of uh, metaphor occasionally. But Halaj is a poet of uh, cerebral meditative skill who is talking about theological matters, and, and so uh, uh, one has to struggle with uh, the manner of representing this. But the the last thing I would say about the approach to translation, we're all familiar with authors like uh, A.J. Arbery, who was very prolific uh, translator from Middle Eastern languages. In one of his books, he remarks that no concessions whatever have been made to readability. <laughs> in his translations, which just makes you want to go out and get that book right now. You know. um, and he adopted a kind of a Victorian uh, style that was, it's not how our students or our, our friends read things today. So I tried also to adopt a kind of language that was contemporary and in some cases informal because there is a directness about some of the poetry that is really important to to preserve. Now, um, you you do some of this work also, I think, through the the structure of the book, um, which you have the uh, the poems basically by themselves, um, and then you have a section where you have uh, notes, some rather extensive, um, and then you have a final section. Um, which basically places some of these uh, poems in a larger narrative context. So um, can, can you talk a little bit about this, this choice in terms of, um, you know, how does this framing help contemporary readers? And then perhaps uh, reflecting on the, the last part, um, you know, how would the poems in, uh, be received by uh, earlier or original audiences? Right. Well, um, as uh scholars are aware the uh, collections of poetry in Arabic are organized by the alphabetical order of the rhyme. So in other words, the uh, poems that end in the letter Aleph, which is our letter A, are at the beginning and, and so forth. Uh, 
that doesn't make any sense in organizing a translation into English. And so I divided the collection into uh, separate sections by uh, subject matter. And uh, I think there's nine sections altogether. The, um, then within that, I employed, as you mentioned, several different levels of uh, presentation to assist readers. First of all, I gave each poem a title, which is common enough in English, but was not part of the literary tradition in Arabic. And so that gives a signal to the reader of what the poem is about. Secondly, I have a preface, a little, which might be a one-line introduction, or in some cases, a, a longer paragraph, to introduce poems and to point out some of the uh, peculiarities or challenges especially with the more complicated ones. There are a few that are longer and have more of the complex structure of the ode of the classical Arabic uh, Qasida. And then, um, but I wanted the reader to be able to appreciate the poem as a poem without overwhelming it with uh, reflections of, uh, on details. So therefore, it was, uh, I think, appropriate to put details into the end notes where um, I provide the reader with identification of the poem so it can be located in any of the editions that are available. And then uh, I also indicated who are the authors who quoted this poem that we, we know about. And uh, then there is a opportunity to point out if there are different readings. And uh, so uh, this, in effect, gives a, a sense of the afterlife of the poem in the, in the tradition. Now, out of these 117 poems, um, it turns out that 22 were uh, preserved in, the, uh, in a narrative structure, as you mentioned, which is uh, a text called uh, Akhbar al-Halaj, or The News of Halaj. It's a remarkable work, which uh, really deserves to have be fully translated into English, in which we hear uh, vivid reports of great intimacy and in intensity from uh, friends and uh, associates of Halaj, in which they describe the conditions uh, under which he would recite his poems and uh, sometimes they are quite um, remarkable indeed. The narrative provides us with a different way of appreciating the poem, and it also suggests that um, many of these poems could have been spontaneous, uh, extemporaneous compositions, which is not out of the question given the intensity of the poetic ambiance in uh, Abbasid uh, Baghdad, uh, we know that uh, poetry was uh, omnipresence in the culture of the Sufis. We can see this in the early Sufi uh, writings and uh, many different accounts of the way in which they would write letters to each other. The recipient would receive the letter, turn it over, write a poem on the back. Uh, so, um, I wanted to give readers an opportunity to 
approach the poems from several different perspectives, and uh, this was the organization that suggested itself. Now, um, some of these themes uh, overlap in terms of what what the poems address, um, but can you can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with these categories? Um, you know, what what was some of the criteria you found? Yes, well. Um, one thing that was kind of uh, important was that I needed to uh, acknowledge there are a number of poems which I classified as um, ordinary love poems or conventional love lyrics, because if they were not attributed to Halaj, one could assume that they were just from some poet in a court somewhere who was employing standardized descriptions about lovers who are so suffering that they're, they're about to die or uh, the notion that love is also the cure of the disease of love. And there are these kinds of tropes and, and metaphors, and some of these are found in poems attributed to Halaj. So I wanted to acknowledge that. And I think that, for instance, uh, there's one poem in there which is clearly not by Halaj because we know that it was quoted by people who were familiar with the poems of Halaj. And uh, so I think that um, Massignon just stuck it in there because he liked it. Um, but uh, this is uh, poem number eight, which is called Religion of the Lovers and Religion of the People. Uh, so it's very conventional. And it's also a poem which has turned into a popular song that has been part of a uh, an Egyptian television serial in recent years. So, uh, but incidentally, that's something that we might come back to, that um, uh, quite a few of these poems are uh, have been performed by Arab uh, singers, and they're available on YouTube videos today. Uh, but going back to the organization, uh, so there was... Uh, Conventional love lyrics were the first part. In other words, they didn't have any overt reference to uh, mystical or spiritual topics. And then uh, the next sections include poems on... Uh, there is a, po uh, a section on mystical love poems, followed by uh, a dozen poems on martyrdom, which appear to have foreshadowings of is fate of execution. There are about 20 poems that I classified as metaphysics, which have some pretty uh, intense discussions of theological and metaphysical matters. There are uh, 10 poems which really are prayers and sermons that, uh, for instance, warn you against the temptations of the world and do not actually have anything very mystical about them. A very curious section is the five poems, of, which are riddles. These are enigmatic little uh, posers in which Halaj uh, gives you hints, and you're supposed to guess a number of letters that will make up a word, which is the answer to the question. And some of them are quite uh, uh, ingenious. There is a, uh, a very strong section on the spiritual path, 
which includes, among other things, a reflection of Bai Halaj on the way in which he was rejected by the Sufis for uh, telling the secret of his experience. And the final uh, section is about union. And uh, these are poems that very clearly address the paradoxes of uh, approximating union with God. Um, again, it's, it's not possible to be certain as to whether all of these were actually by Halaj, but there is a voice in some of them that is so remarkable that if it is indeed by somebody else, it still deserves to be associated with the name of Halaj. Now, um, if, if we can dive into some of these uh, themes a, a, a little bit, um, this idea of, uh, of martyrdom um, is tied into uh, ideas about self-annihilation and, and death. And of course, um, these we might think of these differently after knowing his, his life. Um, but uh, how, how, does, how do these themes kind of uh, figure into his poetry? Well, um, sometimes... <clears throat> It is evoked in a kind of impersonal fashion. There's one poem here, which is uh, number 42, uh, Died in Blood, which is a single line in which you, uh, you hear the voice of God uh, warning uh, those who would be lovers. Here is the poem. Don't mince words with us, for here is a finger that we have died with the blood of lovers. That's really direct. <laughs> and, uh, but I classify it as a poem about martyrdom because it just seems to fit in that, uh, in that section. The, um, These poems include several, uh, which also, uh, in terms of martyrdom, there's an interesting linkage with the story of Iblis, the uh, Satan figure of Islamic uh, legend. And Iblis is given a kind of an interesting interpretation by Halaj, which was picked up by other people later on. In other words, that although he seemed to have disobeyed God, in the Quranic account of the creation of Adam, uh, God orders all the angels to bow down to Adam, and Iblis refuses. And Halaj and his some of his followers suggest that actually Iblis was following God's wish and had was playing a deep game in which he was going to be suffering. And so, uh, the suffering of Halaj as a martyr has an interesting parallel to the exile of Iblis. And so uh, there are several poems in which this is evoked. Uh, and then there's um, one in particular that is very famous that's uh, about 20 lines. It's one of the longer poems in the collection in which he opens with the uh, unforgettable words, Kill me, friends, for in my killing is my life. My death is in my life. My life is in my death. And this uh, desire for martyrdom is reflected in some of the narratives which uh, are reproduced in the appendix, in which Halaj is running through the 
bazaars and mosques of Baghdad, and he tells the people that there is no greater duty for them than to execute him. And they are shocked. And then he recites poems on this. So uh, it's um, possible that some of these were written after the fact, but it is extraordinarily uh, close to the fate of Halaj. And so it's irresistible to put this together with the theme of martyrdom as a, as a subject. Now, uh, in the metaphysics uh, section, um, but but also uh, in other places, but uh, notably in the, the last section on union, um, Halaj gets into um, some some rather technical ideas, um, and I'm wondering about this idea of kind of explaining uh, technical uh, metaphysics through the genre of poetry. Um, so are, are there, are there limitations to, uh, this genre and, uh, expressing that, uh, or perhaps also unique opportunities that, uh, that open up through poetry? Well, um, there's one in particular that is kind of, uh, uh, seems strange as a poem. And this one is a kind of list of technical terms which um, he enumerates in a series of three uh, three terms to a line and uh, let me see if I can locate that one it's uh, it's actually been recorded by um, a modern singer um, yes it's called silence uh, and he, uh, I'll just give you a few lines to this one. Silence, then taciturnity, then dumbness, and knowledge, then finding, then burying, and clay, then fire, then light, and cold, then shadow, then sun. And so he goes through uh, six, seven lines of this, enumerating these technical terms, which end with extinction. And he says, these are expressions for the people to whom the world is equal to a penny. And so uh, he then has reflections on how difficult it is to understand these terms. Uh, this is not exactly a lyrical poem. There's no question about it. Um, and... Several of his poems also um, are are challenging to follow because they attempt to replicate the extinction of the self. And so he I think he does this pretty well, but it is not exactly in the same category as as the court poetry of uh, the day. Although some of them, some of the poems do exhibit features like symmetry and um, where the beginning and the end refer to each other and uh, create a kind of a transformation of the self, which is supposed to be the characteristic of the classical ode. 
But um, I'd say one other point to make about the relationship of this or the, the characteristics of this poetry. When I was preparing the book, I examined the literature and it became clear to me that although there's been a fair amount of attention given to later Arabic uh, Sufi writers who use poetry, such as Ibn al-Farid and Ibn Arabi, both of whom were active around the 13th century, they, they're uh, very notable for writing long, complex odes. And uh, those are, in, in fact, uh, capturing not only the uh, conventions of court poetry, but also in many respects, we'll look back to the, especially with Ibn Arabi, they look back to the pre-Islamic poets and their uh, conventions of um, love and, and loss. But there has been very little attention given to the early Sufi poetry. And uh, it's important to point out that much of it is uh, short and is uh, what may be called an occasional poem. The Arabic word is qita'a or muqata'a, which means a fragment. And so these are poets, poems that have uh, a single thought and which generally don't, aren't long enough to develop a complex uh, pattern. There are six or eight poems in the works of Halaj which come close to the complexity of the classical Qasida. But uh, aside from that, they're much more focused on a particular single image or experience. Um, now, there's a uh, in the prayers and sermon sections, um, but also perhaps in the, uh, the the section on the spiritual path, which is maybe a little more focused, um, we we get kind of um, perhaps a, a glimpse of. Um, kind of the social life of uh, this poetry. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have thoughts about, um, you know, what, what, uh, what these various poems can tell us about maybe communal or ritual context of Sufism, um, you know, during, during the life of Halaj. Well, that's an interesting uh, uh, point. The, um, I think... The prayers and and sermons and also the riddles uh, tell us something about the the education of these uh, Sufis and their immersion in the Arabic uh, literary tradition and the uh, the alphabet itself becomes a way of uh, approaching this. I'm not sure how far we can take these in terms of reconstructing a larger social uh, network, but for instance, uh, yeah, the the sermon itself is is a rhetorical form which critiques behavior and thought on ethical principles and in the Sufi vocabulary of uh, psychological investigation of the inner self and its motives, that kind of critique that is, you know, most obviously embodied in a, in a uh, sermon about the deception of the world, 
is taken to a deeper level and uh, that is going to be a matter of self-examination, which is modeled in the, in the master-disciple relationship. So I think that uh, is kind of implicit in, uh, in many of these poems. The um, performance of prayer is pretty uh, central, and uh, not only the ritual prayer five times a day, the, the Sufi practice is well known for its emphasis on the extra credit prayers that are not required. And many of the dialogues in the Akbar al-Halaj, the stories about him, uh, focus on the spontaneous prayers which he was uttering. And so that's another part of spiritual practice that we get an interesting perspective on. Um, So... The pilgrimage to Mecca is something that's referred to frequently. That's that's an important question. Um, but uh, let's see, what else? The use of paradox. It's hard to get from that to a social practice. But uh, the culture of writing is is uh, pervasive in th- throughout this and. The notion of uh, communication, secrecy, the esoteric, the public, all those are are part of that as well. Um, Now, uh, at at the end of the book, you have uh, several uh, appendixes. uh, And one of them that uh, we've talked about some of them, but uh, one of them that was uh, interesting was uh, the relationship between Rumi and Halaj. Um, which which might not seem obvious or apparent to many, even people who are reading Rumi. Um, but I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that um, and, and why you included that in this text. Right. Well, I think uh, Rumi is a name that is very well known in the public, uh, thanks to translators and poets such as Coleman Barks and Robert Bly. And uh, so if you do a search for Sufi poetry, Rumi comes up uh, most of the time. And so I thought it would be interesting to point out the extent to which uh, Rumi was a, a big fan of Halaj. And in fact, he quotes him extensively in his own poetry. It's also not well known among uh, readers of Rumi that he has hundreds of lines that are in pure Arabic, not in Persian. And so um, he plays with the poems of Halaj uh, extensively. In in one case, he quotes two different poems of Halaj in the same breath, practically. And then he sort of rewrites some of these these poems. He's particularly fond of the the one I referred to a little earlier in our discussion. Um, Kill me, friends, for in my killing is my life. And that is something that occurs half a dozen times in, in Rumi's poems. And uh, there's one place in particular that I think is fascinating. When uh, in the Divan, in the lyrical poems, uh, Rumi quotes a rather strange poem by Halaj, which begins with the line, 
I have a lover whose love is inside of me, and if he wants, he strolls across my face. At this, Rumi then continues in Persian, and he says, Speak Persian, though Arabic be sweeter. Love itself has a hundred other languages. What I find interesting is that although Rumi says here we should speak Persian, he says, though Arabic may be sweeter. And he's using halaj as the example of the Arabic that is superior to Persian. Uh, this may not be accepted by uh, Iranian enthusiasts, um, that, that Rumi could have actually said that he liked Arabic better. But uh, I think it's interesting that he was inspired to say that when he was thinking about the poems of Halaj. So that was a way in which he was indicating that Halaj was a kind of a standard of, of eloquence. Um, well, Carl, it's a, it's a wonderful book overall, and I could imagine it being used in, uh, in all sorts of different ways and contexts, um, especially in the classroom. Um, I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts about, uh, you know, I know it emerged kind of from graduate seminars, but, uh, have, have, have you used it in other classes or heard about other people using it or have suggestions of how we might put it to use? Well, um, I have used it in classes and, uh, I, I like to use poetry, um, a lot in my big uh, lecture class on Islamic civilization. I have students take the option of memorizing a poem, either in translation or in the original, and reciting it to the entire class as one assignment. And this, we always have people who sign up for this and have fun with it. Um, so uh, that's one thing you can do. Um, another thing is uh, to, to bring in these uh, YouTube videos of people who are um, reciting these poems today. There's probably close to 20 singers who have done this. And I think that that provides such a wonderful intimacy and vividness. If you can hear the poem recited and performed in its original language, I strongly recommend that. Um, and then uh, the last thing is that it, if you have a, a seminar type of situation where you can do some close study, to look at one, one or two of the more complex poems in which there is uh, symmetry, where uh, a theme is mentioned at the beginning and is picked up at the end, and to see how it works. And I think this gives students a respect for the deliberateness of poetic composition and the importance of being able to read slowly and to pick up the hints that go along with it. So I'm hopeful that uh, people will appreciate hearing this voice uh, from the past, which to my mind is so extraordinary and, uh, and powerful. And so uh, I'm very happy to see this available and I've been very encouraged by the responses that I've had so far. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great book and always good to have more, uh, primary sources in, uh, in English for, for us to have. Um, speaking of which, um, what, what kind of things are you working on now? Um, we're all excited for, for more work from you, of course. Well, 
there's a big project I'm working on with the Perso Indica project that's uh, tracking the uh, Persian translations from Sanskrit and the Persian writings about India. But I'd like to mention a new project that I'm I got involved with, which is uh, turning out to be quite extraordinary. Uh, you, you're you may be familiar with the name of Omar ibn Sayyid, an African Muslim uh, scholar who was uh, sold into slavery in uh, the Carolinas in the early 19th century, and who wrote a short Arabic autobiography while enslaved in Bladen County, North Carolina, 1831. Uh, there's a small body of texts that he wrote, most of them quite short. Um, and this fall, uh, uh, together with my colleague at Duke University, Professor M. Bai Lo, who teaches Arabic, he's from Senegal. We taught a course together on the writings of Omar ibn Sayyid. And we discovered to our surprise that um, in the publications uh, about him and his writings, nobody had bothered to actually edit the Arabic text of his writings. They were working kind of ad hoc from photographs of uh, the manuscripts. And so no one had really taken a disciplined look at the precise language and terms that he was using. And in the context of doing that, uh, we're, we're actually going to publish these in a digital form on a project that is hosted by the University of Maryland, the Islamicate Text Initiative. And so this will be in digital form, both in the original Maghrebi script including whatever mistakes he made in quotation, and then in a standardized and corrected version. But what was astonishing, Christian, was when we got into it more closely to learn that he had was quoting from a half a dozen works on Islamic theology and Sufism. Hmm. And nobody had uh, realized this before. Uh, this includes uh, his quotation of a poem by Abu Madian, the great Andalusian Sufi of the 12th century, whose shrine in North Africa is massively important, and um, a couple of other Sufi writings, uh, and as well as uh, theological texts from Kairouan, 10th century, from Egypt in the 13th century. And so this really kind of changes the picture dramatically because some scholars had suggested that Omar ibn Sayyid was only half literate and uh, his Arabic was corrupt and you couldn't really make much out of it. But to see him quoting these in writings addressed to people in 19th century North Carolina, slave owners, who couldn't possibly have comprehended it, it creates an immensely fascinating question of, what was he doing? What was he writing? Who was he addressing? And uh, when these writings, uh, when these texts that he is quoting are critical of the wealthy and powerful, does this constitute a rebuke and a reproach to the slave owners? Um, the last thing to be observed is that um, he actually remarks twice in his so-called autobiography that he cannot write his life which I think is an acknowledgement that the slave cannot speak. Uh, it's, it's a practically unique document insofar as 
the other slave narratives that we have in English are all by people who have experienced liberation from slavery. But his is written within the condition of slavery, and it contains many remarkable uh, features. So we're hoping to develop this as a project, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, it sounds it sounds wonderful. Good luck on uh, on that, and thank you for uh, and sharing it with us in a way that is. Uh, it sounds like it'll be kind of open access and available to all sorts of people. So absolutely, that is also uh, very welcome as well. Well, thanks again, Carl. Uh, we appreciate you uh, making time to talk about your book and all, all your contributions to the field of Islamic studies. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you have a great series here, and I'm very uh, happy to be a part of it. So we'll hope to have more of these contributions in the future. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Carl Ernst about his book, Halage, Poems of a Sufi Martyr, published with Northwestern University Press in 2018. 